Welcome, everybody. This is the Uncharted Veterinary Podcast. Guys, I'm here with a special bonus episode. I am here with the one and only Scott Burton. Scott is an MBA, certified vet practice manager. He is working on his PhD in leadership. He has got a ton to say about culture. We get into culture uh, as it affects the team, as it affects the clients. We even touch a bit on the culture as it comes to talking about money uh, in in our team and with our pet owners. So guys, I hope you're going to enjoy this. Uh, I think Scott's a really, really interesting guy. Boy, he knows the research backwards and forwards. Get your pens and papers ready if you want uh, resources. I, I grabbed them. I put links in the show notes to, to the things that he talks about. But man, get ready for a lot of information on culture from a very academic, interesting place coming at you. Without further ado, let's get into this episode. But before we do, I got to tell you real fast, this episode is made possible ad-free by Care Credit. Let's go. And now, the Uncharted Podcast. And we are back. It's me, Dr. Andy Rook, and my friend, Scott Burton, hospital administrator. Uh, Scott, how are you? I'm doing just fine. Thank you so much for having me today. Oh, man, I'm glad that you're here. So uh, so every now and then, uh, I like to step out and have conversations with other people in the industry who uh, who talk about business and think about business and vet medicine in interesting ways. And uh, you fall into that category for me. You have uh, you have an interesting background for sure. You uh, Picking, you have a th- you have a theology degree. Is that you majored in theology? Is that true? Yeah. So my undergraduate was in Bible and theology, and I minored in youth ministries. And so uh, people have always been important to me. Uh, it's it's been very important to me, um, and just their well being. And from a spiritual level, uh, ultimately, I I'm very compassionate about uh, where people end up eternally. So. Um, you know, from the spiritual side of things, that's that's where I ended up. And then my master's in business administration, I focused on human resources. So that was the physical aspect of uh, just people in their work environment and understanding how that plays into things and just the overall well-being of, of individuals. Gotcha. You have a, an MBA and a CVPM. You uh, you have a background. You worked with Bank of America for a while. You were the hospital administra- administrator at Southern Regional Veterinary Specialists in Dothan, Alabama. And you're working on a PhD in executive leadership, uh, m- mostly focused on culture is what it sounds like to me. Is that correct? I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of language around that, but that's that's what it feels like to me. Explain that a little bit. Yeah. So um, uh, essentially what I'm going to be doing for my dissertation is uh, looking at uh, culture in the veterinary space. And I'm going to be uh, culture is is much broader than veterinary medicine. And it goes outside of veterinary medicine. And uh, it's really important in all organizations or any groups of people, whether it be the church, whether it be uh, veterinary hospitals or a Fortune 500 company. Um, and Edgar Schein has done uh, extensive research on organizational uh, culture and leadership and, and how those things fit together um, at infancy and organization does have some flexibility in their culture and they're defining it and it's, it's kind of fluid, but after a period of time, it becomes very rigid and okay. shine shine outlines that, you know, that stagnation period occurs and, and there's some, uh, concrete that sets in and organizations fail to adapt. And I think that we've seen that with COVID-19. Uh, leaders are not prepared for the unexpected. Um, 
So what culture is, or what I want to look at, is how we can have an adaptive culture where we have individuals who are coming in um, to our organization. We have we have turnover rates, um, and and our culture changes as individuals change. Our experience is different. Uh, what we've lived through is different, and so our culture has to change for those individuals. We can't stay stagnant, but if we do, uh, what we're doing is we're asking those individuals to conform to the standards that we have already preset. Um, it, it's probably best to go ahead and start with a definition of what culture is. So, so, so I want to I I frame this before we di- dive into culture uh, uh, overall, and so uh, just one of the things I think is interesting about you is, you know, I, I'm looking at, at at trends and problems and patterns, challenges facing our industry. And there's there's busyness, there's staff shortages, there's burnout, sort of rising prices for pet owners and things like that. And one of the things I, I think is really interesting about you, which I really want to talk about today, is your response to this is culture, culture, culture. And and I think I, I am a I, I I'm a huge believer in in uh, positive work culture and and defining a good culture in the practice and things like that. You explicitly uh, tag these problems uh, with culture as as a solution. And so before you start to unpack culture, I kind of want to just lay that down of what I'm looking at and the reason that I wanted to sort of have you here and, and sort of dive into this is sure. I, I want to understand how you look at those things. So I do agree. I I think defining culture in your words at the beginning, I think it's really useful. So do do that for me, but then go ahead and and let's start to unpack how you see culture as a solution to these very real problems that uh, are pretty common right now. Yeah, and, that, and that's part of what I'm trying to understand with my dissertation and the research that I'm going to be conducting is really trying to get to the root of the issue um, and understanding what exactly is the underlying cause uh, of, of some of these things or phenomenon that's occurring in, in veterinary medicine. But um, uh, the definition of culture that I adhere to is, again, from Edgar Schein, and it's a, a pattern of basic assumptions invented, discovered, or developed by a given group as it learns. So the assumption there is that uh, culture is not just a, a mission statement at the front of a book. It, it's not uh, pizza on Fridays. Um, it, it, but it is a consistent message from leadership um, to develop and nurture individuals and their function within the organization. So it's woven into everything that we do in our daily work life. Take, take that and bring it down for me and help me see what that looks like. Because that's, 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 I hear the words and I'm going, okay, I agree. It's not, it's not donuts and coffee. You know, it's, it's not. It's not a friendly mission statement. Um, bring that around and help me take me to a uh, to a, a hypothetical practice where I can see what that looks like. I, I'm I'm not going to use the word culture. Yeah, but okay. um, so so the environment it, it, it's it's probably best illustrated through an ecosystem and and Bolton through complexity theory um, talks about uh, or frequently uses ecosystems uh, to describe diversity. Okay. So if we're looking at it, at a practice um, and the way the practice functions, we want to, of course, fo- foster that diversity because in diverse environments, we have the most advantage for sustainability. Um, but when it comes to just day-to-day life, um, what we see, and, and this 
and I'm sorry to be quoting so many different books, but um, an everyone culture by Keegan, um, and it has has really struck me um, in in my thinking about just the way that we function and operate because we all have weaknesses, mm-hmm. and when we come into an organization, we try to hide those weaknesses. Um, so when we're hired to do a job, we we're essentially doing two jobs. One, we're hiding, we're doing the job we were hired to do. And secondly, we're hiding our weaknesses. Yeah. So we're spending 50% of our, we're, we're spending 50% of our time hiding our weaknesses and spending the other 50% of the time doing the job that we were hired to do. So we've, we come into, and it's natural, it's survival instinct. We don't want to be fired. We don't want to lose our job. We don't want to lose our position. We want to impress so what if in a veterinary practice, uh, we said, um, you know what, I want to know what your weaknesses are. And we focus on those weaknesses and then we start developing those individuals. Let me, let me ask you about that. So, so, so I, I love it. So, so, uh, so it's, it, it's owning the whole person is kind of what it sounds like. Right. So, so, uh, taking that, we, we all have strengths and weaknesses. I, I'm a huge believer in that. I think I think my thing has always been uh, trying to figure out what my strengths are and how to and how to lean into them, and then other people trying to put them into positions to to really uh, emphasize their strengths over trying to necessarily correct their strengths. Are you saying that as we sort of identify this and we put them into a framework, is this about about fixing or growing uh, patching weaknesses, or is this about about shielding people uh, and putting them into advantageous positions for their own skill sets? Help me help me understand that. It, well, actually, um, Amy Edmondson is is great. I, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, psychological safety, um, but she is a, a great proponent of developing an arena or an environment where individuals feel safe to be able to have open dialogue and discussions with uh, their superiors without fear of retaliation or um, any kind of retribution. And so if we're creating these safe spaces so that employees can come to us and say, Hey, listen, I'm really struggling with interacting with clients. You know, I'm just not getting it. And so instead of that individual shying away from the client interactions, they're coming to leadership and saying, Hey, I really need help with this. They're no longer hiding who they really are. Okay. They may have a personality conflict or a personality issue that, that limits them emotionally or, or psychologically that, uh, just keeps them from having those interactions and barriers. But knowing what those weaknesses are, we can put them in a role where they can, like you said, where they can shine, where they yeah. can, uh, where they can stand out instead of putting them in a position where they're uncomfortable or a position where they're destined to fail. So yeah. instead of trying, instead of trying to fill spots. We need to know our individuals well enough to be able to put them in the right place. And so to me, when we look back at Eggershine's definition, it's a pattern of basic assumptions invented, discovered. That's that discovery portion or developed by a given group as it learns. So we're going to be learning together. So leadership needs to be open to learn. And the individuals in our environment need to be open to learn. And we need to have a two-way dialogue, two-way discussion where um, individuals can come to us, we can come to them, 
and yeah. we can talk about what's really going on with people in their lives. The days of being able to hold our, or hang our problems at the door as we walk into work, those are over. I want to come back to that. Okay, now, you kind of blew my mind. There's the one thing I have to ask you first, and then I'm going to come back to hanging our problems at the door when we come in, because I'm going to need you to, I need you to unpack that for me a second. Um, so no, so I'm, going to, I'm going to be vulnerable here for a second and say one of the things that's bothered me about my own business for years is that I have always been such a big believer in getting people in and seeing what they're good at and adapting to their strengths. Yeah. And the pushback that I have gotten a little bit internally is, and it comes from a good place, is that people say, but Andy, we need to have job descriptions to hire and people need to come in and we need to know what they're going to do and then we're going to hire them and then we need to set clear expectations for what they're going to do. And I 100% hear that. But in practice, I have never made a hiring job description that ended up being what the person actually did. And, and pardon me, but I've been pretty successful at getting people in and retaining them and and really uh, growing some rock stars, you know, not not through any there's I take no credit for that other than not getting in their way. And, you know, that that's it. That's as much as I brought to the table was uh, ideally I, I like to think I put them in a place where they could really get uh where they could shine and, and stayed out of their way. But but I have felt less than at times in the past for not having a clearly defined job description, having a role, having a spot, hiring this person and clipping them into the spot and having them effective. This is what you're doing. I always bring it in. We just went through a, a period. So in our business, we, we've gone through an expansion uh, recently. And there, I'll just be honest, there's a lot of times when people look at me and go, but Andy, whose job is it to do this thing? And I'm like, I don't know yet. Ask me in two weeks and I will know whose job it is. But right now I don't know. And I felt embarrassed about that. So Scott, tell me, um, is that, first of all, uh, am, I, am I off base here? Does that kind of track with what you're saying as far as um, adapting to the people that are there? Uh, how, do you, how do you look at that when I say it? And feel free to tell me, yes, you're off base, Andy. You should have job descriptions <laughs> to them from the very beginning. Uh so, so multiple things, you hit on multiple things there. So, um, and, and we could probably spend the rest of the time just dissecting what you said right there, but um, you're, you're looking at several different factors. So do you need a job description so people know what to ex expect? Of course you do. Um, but at the same time, when you're hiring somebody, what, what it sounds like you're doing is you're hiring based on culture fit. Um, and people know you, people know your hospital, and they're coming to you because they know what you stand for, they know what your hospital stands for, and they say, I want to be a part of that. They're not necessarily coming for the job description. They're coming for the culture that you have created. And that's what we need to do as leaders and practice owners is we need to establish our culture such, and it's not a brand, but we need to we need to establish our culture such that people desire or want to be a part of what we're trying to do. We've established something that feels good and it's not a feel good to feel good. It's not a warm, fuzzy feel good, but it feels good because you're part of something and we all have this innate desire to be part of something special. And so what I'm hearing from you is that you have created this environment that people want to be a part of and they want to stay a part of it. On the flip side, what I'm hearing is that you have employees that may be wondering, hey, I don't know who is supposed to do what. 
So we need to define these functions. Um, and I, I'm also a believer in that if we have these functions that need to be done, we're all in this together. We're all on the same ship. If we have a hole in the ship, are we just going to point fingers and see who's going to plug the hole? Or are we just going to dive on the hole and try to keep us from sinking? Yeah, um, that, and that's a pretty, that makes- pretty extreme example. But if our culture is such, we care enough about each other's survival in the practice, and survival is probably a strong word, but if we can care enough about each other, it shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter. Because of, eventually, at some point, the tables will turn, and it, it'll be received instead of given. Yeah. So, so in this example, what happens is ultimately we do end up with clear expectations. It just takes some time after new people come in and we, you know, move things around and we figure out how to fit people in. And so ultimately we, we get to that place of clear expectations. So let me, let me ask you about something you said earlier on. So coming from here is what I'm describing to you. So imagine these people coming in and they are rock stars and uh, we're, we're putting them in, we're trying them in some different areas. We're seeing where their skills are, what they seem to, to like, uh, you know, what, what they, where they excel. And we're kind of, we're kind of shuffling some seats on the bus around a little bit on who does what to get the, the strongest uh, skill sets where they can really shine. And so there is some uncertainty there as we kind of move things around and, and, and fit people in. And then ultimately, we, we sort of crystallize and, and turn these into new clear expectations. At the beginning of the podcast, you talked about, uh, you jumped right in and started talking about culture and stagnation. Is this an example in your mind of, of sort of periods of stagnation and breaking through stagnation where you say, this is how we interact with each other. And now we have new people coming in. And so if there's going to be some uncertainty, that feels like there's no path out of stagnation without uncertainty in, in my mind. Do you, do you agree with that? Is that an example of what you were talking about or, or am I off base? As st- stagnation would be more, I'm not open to changing. Okay. So stagnation would be leadership taking the mindset that we have created this. Uh, we're not open to looking at a change. We're not open to developing any more change. We are what we've created, and this is who we're going to stay, which for a particular culture, that's that's okay. I mean, you, you can develop a culture, but you also have to understand that individuals change. And so if you're maintaining a similar culture, that's okay. But if you're if you're saying you have to fit this mold, that's not okay. So that would be the stagnation point. It sounds like you're talking about culture as um, this sort of, I don't want to say culture is a process. It, it, to you, it, it sounds like you're talking about an ever-changing, fluctuating thing. I think a lot of people like to think, I've got, I know I've had these thoughts in my past, is I'm going to get a good culture established, and then I will yeah. have a good culture. And, and from then on, we will protect that culture. And what you're kind of saying is, no, it doesn't work that way, buddy. You're 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 always yeah. going to have a changing culture, and so you you better you better keep trying to keep it positive, but also know your culture this year is going to be different than it was last year. Is is that true? Yes, it is very true. And so, uh, one of my professors, Dr. White, uh, mentioned to me re- just recently that uh, uh, you know any change in culture, uh, especially you know if you're trying to incite change, can take up to three years to actually implement. And, and take place. Uh, with that is going to require leadership to be constantly monitoring and to have a strategic plan in place as far as where we are and where we're going. Um, culture doesn't happen, ac- culture can happen accidentally, um, but 
good culture doesn't happen overnight. Um, and it's not set it and forget it. Um, it is an ongoing process that never ends. Um, yeah. so if, if we're under the assumption that we have arrived as a culture, again, that's where that, that's where we fall victim to that stagnation and we start to, our culture will immediately start to decline. Edgar Schein goes on to say that, uh, if, if we don't manage culture, culture will manage us. And if you look at some of the hospitals that are struggling with it, if, if they're truly transparent and honest with themselves, um, what they have done is they have focused on the processes of what needs to happen. I need a person, I need a warm body. I need somebody to draw blood. They hire the person to draw blood. They're meeting that immediate need, but the long-term need of that culture is sacrificed. And when they sacrifice that culture, it makes it harder to hire that next person. Yeah, when you talked about uh, managing culture, I, I hear that. You also talked about uh, asking people to leave their personal issues at the door, that that's, that's not how it works anymore. And so I want you, as we talk about managing culture, I want you to go back to that statement and sort of unpack that for me as well, because I think a lot of people have said, I know it sounds cold-hearted when people say, look, leave your personal things at the door. What they're really saying is, um, you know, uh, they're, they're trying to figure out how to reduce drama and extra emotion inserted into yeah. the practice. And so it sounds like a good idea to tell people, don't don't bring your personal issues to work. Like come to work and be at work and then and then go home and be at home. And, and I 100% can understand that. Talk to me a little bit about about your perspective on that. And so, uh, so you you don't like the idea that we that we leave our that we leave our personal issues at the door. Tell me more. Yeah, well, I, I can just tell you from personal experience. This past month, um, you know, my children were ill with the flu. Um, I had Mind the flu. You. My wife had the flu. <laughs> um, yeah. it, it was incredibly difficult, and um, you know, we had to depend very heavily on our staff and our hospital to help carry us through that. And uh, they were very understanding and very gracious in allowing us, and I say allow us, because we didn't hear any grief from them. We didn't hear any complaining from them uh, regarding our absence when we were ill or taking care of our sick children. Um, that was outside of the practice, um, but it affects the practice. And, and so we cannot ignore the fact that we have lives outside of practice. Um, you know, the whole work-life balance thing has become almost trite that it's it, it said so much. And when you're talking about work-life balance, what does that mean? What yeah. what what is that definition? Um, and and really what it boils down to is what am I willing to tolerate at work to justify being at work, to justify not being at home. Yeah. And and, and and that's that's that work-life balance or how I see that work-life balance. It, it's when, when I left the banking industry, I was working 25 hours a week. I was getting paid for uh, holidays, uh, had uh, 12 Mondays off a year, um, had two weeks of vacation. Uh, on top of that, had tons of time off. Uh, you talk about a work-life balance. It was great. And I left that to work 45, 50 hours a week. Now, tell me how that makes sense from a work-life balance situation. Well, what it ultimately amounted to is what I was doing at the bank didn't align with what I needed uh -huh. personally. 
in, in my personal development. And so I went somewhere that did. So talk to me. I, I, I love that. I think that's, I think that I love that, that way of putting out work-life balance. I don't like that term work-life balance. Just, just to me, it's because it looks like, I, to me, I think you perfectly illustrated why. I, to me, it's really sort of work-life integ- integration, right? It's, it's, I don't, I'm sure I'm not the only one. My life's kind of complicated and things come, things come to work with me and things go home with me. And, it, and it's, and I don't, you know, I try to make sure I have time to rest, but, um, but the idea of I need to work eight hours in a day, be with my family for four hours in a day, sleep eight hours a day, and that is perfect work-life balance. I go, well, that doesn't, that doesn't tend to work out. I think my math is off, but you get the point. Um, four hours, four hours of personal time of me uh, doing, doing hobbies. Anyway, um, that never, that never works. It's, it's always kind of a, a hodgepodge back and forth. And so when you lay out this really nice, uh, theoretically nice schedule that you had and say, well, this isn't work-life balance that I'm, that I'm okay with. And then you jump into a thing where you're working much more. I, I get that. That that to me matches the reality that I see when we talk about the idea of work life balance. Talk, talk to me a bit about um, talk to me a bit about sort of managing um, managing sort of uh, emotions inside inside the practice. So we're still talking about culture, and we've talked about that sort of psychological safety, and that that makes a lot of sense. But I, I can only stay after this integration of 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 me being a human being and not being able just to put put the fact that my kids are sick but beside me, you know, and, and or leave it out, outside. I'm bringing that in. Talk to me a bit about how we integrate sort of the emotional experience that people have into a positive culture, as opposed to try to get people to be non-emotional or, or leave their, their personal life outside. Yeah, and, and that's a very difficult thing to do. I, I think that there is um, certainly some voids there. And, and certainly in the emergency arena where you're dealing with a lot of uh, trauma, you're dealing with a lot of clients that have um, uh, emotional shock from what has just happened to their pet, to euthanasia. Um, I think from the emotional standpoint, we, we have to be able to have a networked community within our hospital to provide that emotional support. Um, we cannot be cold, callous, or say, you just need to suck it up and do your job. Uh, we need to allow for breaks. We need to allow for time for recovery after those events um, because our staff, our doctors are, are very much connected to the cases. I mean, especially when they're trying to save them or something unexpected happens that they're trying to do CPR, they're trying to revive them, um, any number of different things, uh, something goes wrong and then they have to go tell the family and the children uh, uh, that, you know, part of their, or a member of their family is is no longer with them. Um, that, that takes an emotional toll. And over time, that that weighs down on a person. And so there needs to be an emotional release of that, there needs to be a way for them to talk about that, what they're feeling, how they're feeling, um, and as leaders, we need to be able to sense that. We need to be able to pick up on that, uh, and, and it's not just how you doing. I'm doing fine, and move on about our day. You know, we we checked it off. They're they're okay. We're moving on. No, we need to have meetings. We need to have debriefs and talk about what just happened. We have a client that comes in. Um, it's a bloat. They don't have the financial means to take care of it, uh, they in, end up euthanizing the dog. Um, emotional toll on, on the staff. Well, let's talk about it. Listen, that wasn't your decision. Um, it was out of your control. 
um, that this was a choice that they made. This this wasn't a choice that you made. You did it. You did what you could do. You did your part. How does this make you feel? Probing questions, allowing them to vent, allowing them to cry if they need to. Um, just providing that safe space again just that um uh emotional safety is is key to providing safe environments in, in the culture because if if we're telling them listen we're, we're, we're not a you're, that's not okay here you, you got to pretend to be something else again we go back to that we're hiring you to do this but we need you to fake and be somebody else i can i can feel a certain subset of listeners recoiling uh, and, and, you know, I feel it too. So in your mind, uh, these, like these type of pros and questions, this, this comes, this is a leadership skill is, is asking people to sort of unpack how they, how they felt about this and, and, uh, and to have these, these types of conversations. Where is, where is the line, I guess, in that, where we say, I'm, I, I do want to be supportive. And at the same time, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not a therapist and, you know, and, uh, and yeah. I, I, I can, I, I worry about the slippery slope, obviously, of everyone coming to me every day to talk about how they're, you know, how they're how they're feeling about things. And I go, I'm not really qualified to 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 have this yeah. level of, of input into into how you're coping with things. Yet, help me understand that a little bit. Well, and I, I think it's with anything, and especially with you know our industry and and so many suicides um, within our profession. I, I think that as leaders, we need to be aware of. Uh, the emotional state of our staff and be able to help them find the resources that they need. We don't yeah. necessarily need to provide the answers. We need to provide them with ways to find the answers. So I'm, I'm not going to have the solution to that, to, to provide them, but sometimes they just need somebody to sit there and listen. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've found uh, a lot of the time it, it's just, it's just being able to listen. My wife has told me multiple times, I don't want you to fix the problem. I just want you to listen. Um, and, and, you know, listening goes a long way to, uh, just helping people feel important, help, help them feel like they're being heard to be able to vocalize the way that they feel, uh, can have a major impact on, um, just how they're internalizing their emotions to be able to just get it out there on the table. So I, 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 I definitely hear that. I, 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 I think you're onto something as far as, again, I, I like the idea of, of psychological safety and people knowing that they're able to talk about how they're feeling, especially when things are coming up inside the practice. I, I think that that's really important. Uh, and also, I also buy into the idea of being able to ask these types of questions as, as a modern leadership skill. I think maybe 40 years ago, you said, no, you leave personal life at home and we go, I don't think there's those, I don't think that resonates with the people that we're leading anymore. So I, I, I'm on board with where you're going. Con convince me that, um, that this sort of approach on culture and, and an evolving culture, uh, convince me that, that the pet owners see and feel this, that, that this actually has a positive uh, ex uh, impact on the pet owner experience. Because you talk a lot about, you know, um, culture with, uh, with financial conversations, so like with, uh, you know, pet, owner, pet owners who are having a, a negative experience. Uh, talk, talk me through how you make that leap. So um, the, the best example that I could provide you is just in, in our practice, um, you know, we have pet owners who interact with our, our staff and they just appreciate the communication. Um, they can tell a difference in the way things are communicated. Um, it, it's hard to put a pulse point or 
put it into words how that culture is communicated or translated to the clients, but there is a connection and a bond that's transferred so that they can feel the interconnectedness and, and the relationships and the bond that we have as a hospital. And they, they feel safe. I, I can't tell you how many times uh, pets have come into our hospital and the client is saying they're going to freak out, they're, they're not going to feel safe. And even the pets respond differently in our hospital. So, I mean, there is definitely something to that low tension uh, interconnectedness that takes place that, that does transform and create an environment that is welcoming and open to others who enter it. Do you buy the idea that if you create a workspace where your employees feel sort of psychologically safe, where they feel like mistakes are not the end of the world and where they're not sort of continuously being judged um, or they're being judged fairly and they know what expectations are, uh, those people are more likely to interact with pet owners in a more relaxed manner, a more natural manner, um, and, and sort of head off some of the more uh, emotional confrontations that we see. I, I think some of, the, some of the real conflicts that I see are when I have a support staff member who feels like she's stuck and she needs to do, she needs to toe the line or she, her hands are very tied. And then I have a pet owner who feels very stuck and that their hands are very tied. And, uh, and I see an escalation that I don't tend to see in in interactions where the staff members are maybe a little bit more laid back or, you know, um, they can still, they can still enforce policies and protocols, but they do it with a, I'll just say a certain confidence that they don't otherwise have. Do, does that, does that make any sense to you? Do you, do you, would you, does that resonate at it, all? It does. It does. Because when you empower your employees to be able to act on your behalf and they're not having to second guess everything that they do, um, they're able to act more freely, but they, they're also less prone to make mistakes. Uh, because they know that if they do make a mistake, it's either one fixable or two, it, it's okay. And I'm going to learn what the right way is. Early on, when I started, I was very rigid in, in the way that um, I approached those things and tried to have protocols for everything. But you can't predict every scenario. Yeah. And you can't predict every um, interaction that's going to take place. And so the theme started to become listen, we need to do what's best for the client. We need to do what's best for the client. Um, and then in the end, it will ultimately be what's best for us. Um, and so we've adapted and changed uh, the way that we do those things. And I think that individuals feel more empowered, individuals feel more free to make decisions on their own within the framework of what they already know is acceptable and okay. The best illustration that I can give you is um, a, a playground company did a study of kindergartners. They built a playground, it was enormous playground, and they put all these nice uh, playground structures up and uh, they just let the kids loose. Well, what they found is the kids only played with the implements that were stationed next to where the teachers were standing. The, uh, the really big stuff or the nice stuff that was in the back of the field, uh, they didn't even go back there um, until they put up a fence. Once they put up the fence, the kids explored every inch of, of the field. They engaged in more interactive play. 
Um, they ventured further away from uh, the teachers. And I think that that's where we need to be as leaders is we need to clearly define what the parameters are mm. and say, listen, within these parameters, go at it and give them the freedom to innovate, to come up with ideas, collaborate with each other, uh, have imaginative play and, and find new ways to handle the problems that we're facing today. Um, it, it's not just up to me, it's up to everyone. And let's collaborate and come up with a better solution. I love it. Okay, so so here as we're as we're sort of coming to the end, what are what are the biggest steps that you see that people can take to start to build a culture like this, right? So I'll, first of all, I love that I love that story. I've not heard the the fence story before. It completely makes sense to me. I really like that analogy. How, how do you how do you start to how do you build that fence? I guess what are the big things that you think are uh, are easy steps that practices can start to take? And again, this is going to be a work in progress. But what what can we start to do to to build out a culture that's going to make for better practices? Yeah, so, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people that uh, I, I see articles that say, you know, uh, 10 steps to success or 10 steps to a better practice. And I, ju I just start laughing. Yeah. Um, because, you know, not every practice is identical and not every practice is going to have the same people working for, for them or in, in there and they're not going to have the same experiences. So it, it's it's very uh, comical to think that there's a do step one, two, three, four, and mm -hmm. ta-da, you're there. Um, uh, for me, if it's about building a better culture, I think the biggest thing that has to happen is that it has to start with leadership and just uh, establishing some transparency and saying, listen, um, we, we know, uh, or, or just admitting and saying, Something's not right. Yeah. Okay. What is it? Being transparent with yourself and saying, I don't have all the answers. Um, they may, my staff may. Um, am I willing to listen to my staff, hear what they have to say and change because of it? Um, and if you're not at that point, you're not ready for cultural change. Uh, because if, if you're not ready to change based on what your staff are telling you, then you're, you're not ready for it. You're not yeah. ready for it because ultimately culture involves everyone. And if you're going to be uh, dogmatic in your uh, thinking, then, then you basically have isolated yourself in a silo and everybody else is going to do the same thing. And it's not a collaborative environment anymore. Yeah. I, I like that a lot. I think, um, I think a willingness to try things is is mm -hmm. is a big one for me. I think a lot of people hear hear conversations like this and they go, "I don't know if I'm ready to let go of control." And what if they want to do these things that are terrifying? And I go, you know, one of the big things for me has been not not saying we're going to radically change what we're doing. You just have to be willing to try some new things and see how they go. And, yeah. and uh, I that that is that helped me early on to let go of the of the steering wheel so hard. And just go. You know what? We're gonna mm -hmm. we're gonna speak, we're gonna we're, we're gonna listen, and we're gonna try some things, and then we're gonna make some adjustments. And but I I found that to be really good. Scott, what are your uh, what are your favorite resources in this arena? And I know that's a, a huge topic. You've thrown out a number of different studies and books and things that you like. But if someone's like, man, I, I really like I really like what Scott's talking about. This makes a lot of sense to me. Um, what what are some of your favorite resources to get people starting uh, started on the topic? Well, if you're if you're looking for like a complete overview of organizational culture, 
Um, I would say Edgar, Edgar Shines, uh, Organizational Culture and Leadership, um, is probably the best handbook um, regarding culture. Um, I think that that is going to provide you with a overall framework of what culture is, uh, how it works, and things that you can do. Um, but it, it, it's just an overall in-depth understanding of what culture is. Uh, I'll put I'll put I'll put links to all these in the notes. I know people are probably frantically scrambling for a pen. Now go ahead go ahead and finish up. But I'll just I'll, I'll put links to these in the show notes. And Everyone Culture uh, by Keegan. Uh, it, it's another book. Uh, it gives some case studies of organizations. Uh, one one organization specifically, uh, they bring people in, send them through a boot camp, and then have the organization vote as to whether or not the individual is uh, buying into the culture. If they're not, they give them five thousand dollars and tell them to go on their way. Um, I mean, it's just amazing the different ideas that you can glean from that book. Um, it's where I've got some of the resources and some of the quotes from uh, some of the things that I mentioned today. Uh, another one is, um, and it's not something that I really mentioned today, is strategy as practice, which is uh, Paula Jaberzowski, which is a very hard name to spell and <laughs> pronounce. Um, but uh, she's a professor in uh, Australia. Uh, but she looks at an organization and basically what we do um, is is part of strategy, culture in the organization. So she, she gives an example of a man who was uh, a brake break attendant on a train and he was realizing that there was excessive wear on one of the wheels. Um, so he's putting extra oil on it. Um, when he retired, he left, new person came in and the wheels kept burning up. They couldn't figure out why, uh, ended up costing, um, the rail company tremendous amount of money because that experience and knowledge was lost when that man left. And so strategy as practice is a great resource to help us realize the value of the individual and just how important that knowledge is um, and that experience is from each individual person. We may not know their value until they're gone, but we need to dig deep and understand understand their contributions. Oh, man. Scott, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate your time, man. Um, guys, I'm going to put links to the show notes for uh, the, the books that Scott uh, laid out for us. Gang, take care of yourselves. Be well, and we'll talk to you soon. And that is our episode, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. Big thanks to Scott for being here. Big thanks to Care Credit for uh, making this episode happen without any advertisements. We can't do it without support of our partners. Um, gang, that's it. That's what I got. I hope to talk to you very soon. Take care. Be well. See you soon.